0: Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Rebecca Charleston on being a survivor of sex trafficking and advocating for other victims.
1: People can get um, PTSD from a single traumatic event. Mm-hmm. And when you think about my life, and you know, I have 10 years of every single day being a traumatic event. I mean, mm-hmm. I was literally living in my fight or flight right my my autonomic nervous system response that god created in us Mm -hmm. to be able to survive situations i was literally having to survive every single day if it's not violence from my boyfriend or my pimp that i think loves me it's you know violence from other girls it's a competitive game and you're fighting other girls you're fighting sex buyers that want to rape you or take their money back because maybe the experience didn't last as long as they hoped You know, you're running, you're evading hotel security, you're trying to not get arrested. Rebecca Charleston, next.
0: As CEO and co-founder of Reno's Charleston Law Center, Rebecca Charleston advocates for victims of sexual exploitation. It's personal for her as she was a sex trafficking victim for 10 years. Coming up, we'll hear her story and about the Lord's grace in her life. Rebecca, before the sex trafficking happened, tell us a little bit about your childhood, your upbringing.
1: Yeah, I'm not your typical victim of sex trafficking, right? Typical victims, what we see statistically come from the foster care system, come from disadvantaged backgrounds, and Hmm. um, that wasn't me. I am actually the youngest of six kids. Uh, My parents have been married almost 60 years today. Wow. I was raised going to church uh, at a Southern Baptist church in Texas. Um, You know, every Sunday, every Wednesday night, you know, we would be at the church, and um, it Hmm. just kind of goes to show that it could really happen to anyone anywhere.
0: So, how did it happen to you?
1: Sure, I I started having some vulnerability factors hit um, at the young age of five. Uh, One of my brothers committed suicide. Mm. Uh, In the fifth grade, I was bullied really bad and wound up getting sexually assaulted for the first time. I wound up getting uh, raped at a church lock-in of you know of all places at the age of fourteen. And so I had all these, Mm. you know, uh, you know what I've come to know as an adult is rules without relationship equals rebellion. And the kind of environment that I grew up in that Southern Baptist church, a very authoritarian household that if you live under our roof, you go by our rules. And yeah, there's sex don't have it. Yeah, there's drugs don't do them. And that was the extent of the conversations that we had in our household. And Which meant that I learned about all those things in the wrong places, right? Mm -hmm. From my friends instead of fact-based from my my parents. And I remember feeling extremely isolated. I was very depressed. Uh, You know, none of us learned how to cope with the grief of my brother killing himself um, you know, we didn't have any counseling. I mean, there was nothing like that back then. And and we're talking about in the 80s, mm-hmm. you know, and so it was a, just a whole different world from what it is today. And, and I felt very isolated and alone. And, you know, that, that meant I started looking to other people to fill those holes, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I wound up running away from home at one point. Um, I actually, you know, prior to that, I, I actually, you know, had moved out of my parents house, they were, like I said, very authoritarian, and I um, had began coping with Drugs, you know, I just wanted to be numb after being raped um, and sexually assaulted and bullied. I just wanted to be numb, and so I started experimenting with drugs, and I was hiding it from my parents, of course, and began cutting class and and we kind of get got to this kind of argument, and I wound up moving out of their house at the age of sixteen, mm. and um, you know started about you know just. Um, obviously had to work more to support myself and uh, started cutting school even more and, and my parents were terrified and so they they tried to throw a Hail Mary and um, they signed over their rights to me and placed me in an institution in East Texas uh, all Christian girls home and um, you know looking back they didn't know what to do and they thought maybe these people could help me um, in reality what it felt like to me at 16 years old was the ultimate form of betrayal and how they lied to get me there and that they were abandoning me and mm-hmm. they were rejo- me, mm. And so I made a vow to do whatever I could to run and, and never look back. And that's exactly what happened. At the six-month mark, I was good enough to have a home visit. And I had a few nights at my parents' house in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And um, I that's when I, I ran. And I, I ran around the corner to my friend's car. I made a secret arrangement for my friend to come pick me up. And I never looked back to me. I hated my family for what they had done to me. And I didn't want anything to do with them. And I just started living with whoever I could. you know. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't long before I met. A nice guy that seemed like he was going to let me live with him and um, he was going to be my boyfriend. And uh, I had no idea, you know, what intentions he really had for me in the form of my dignity and my body um, until I was too sucked in. You know, and th- and that's the thing about grooming, right? It never starts with the end from the beginning, right? It always starts with something small and, hey, I'm going to meet, you know, traffickers are so skilled at finding vulnerable kids and, mm-hmm. and pretending to meet those needs. You know, traffickers offer instant acceptance and love. And that feels really good mm-hmm. when you're a kid and you're homeless yeah. and you're hungry and you know you can't make it on your own. And, and they prey on those vulnerabilities.
0: And that's typical. Yeah. So- At that point, the boyfriend, he introduced you to that whole world of uh, basically forced prostitution exactly
1: right well yeah and obviously sex trafficking yeah i was a minor so you know it was was automatically sex trafficking Mm -hmm. under the age of 18 yeah you don't have to prove force fraud or coercion and yeah he forced me into prostitution um and of course i thought about running you know Mm -hmm. but it was in a scary part of town i'd never been to before and it was the middle of the night and i didn't have a cell phone i mean this is before cell phone days and i um you know I thought if I ran that I would probably get raped and murdered and chopped up in little pieces and no one would ever find my body and know what happened to me.
0: Mm -hmm. And so
1: I stayed and I did what he told me. Um, You know, that one day turned into the next 10 years of my life, I wasn't able to get away until the federal authorities finally became involved. And um, it was horrific. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're there by force or by circumstance and prostitution. Um, Just the simple fact that someone else is paying you to use your body and for you to not have emotions and to not speak. They, they pay you to not be a human, which mm. means as soon as they pay you, you're now a product that is supposed to be used and discarded and you're treated like a product. You know, it, buyers, sex buyers don't care that you have someone forcing you to be there. Sex buyers don't care if you're being pimped or trafficked. You know, they all they care about is that you're going to meet their sexual gratification, whatever whatever fantasy they have, that, that you're going to meet that for them. And if you don't meet it, then you you're met with violence most often
0: and eventually you ended up as i recall you you, you were um represented by jason guanaso a few years ago in a lawsuit i'll ask you about in a few minutes but you, you eventually ended up in a brothel in nevada
1: That's correct. Yeah. Um, My second pimp, at one point I I ran from my first pimp thinking I was getting away and ran into the arms of another man who would abuse me and exploit me all over the country. And um, that second pimp was a much more professional pimp. He had been a pimp 20 years Hmm. before I ever met him. He was 37. I was 17. And, um, you know, just horrifically manipulated me and controlled all of us. He had multiple victims. And uh, that pimp, um, he would send his victims, the us, to brothels as a form of punishment if one of us there was the, the the bottom one of the other women being trafficked by him that had been around the longest it's called the bottom and she wouldn't make enough money in, in street prostitution and so he would force her to go to the brothels and that way they would control her that she wouldn't be allowed to just sit around and be lazy as he would call it that she would be forced to get up and go to the bell every single time and mm. there would be other mechanisms of control to force her to do the prostitution and um if we weren't making enough money in a city or if we were getting arrested too much in las vegas it's very common that they'll rotate out the vice officers so that way because you start to be recognizable mm-hmm. you know by by the people that are in prostitution and and so um if we, if we were getting arrested too much he would send us to the brothels for a short stint to kind of get out of town and lay low essentially so he would use it as a form of punishment
0: mm we're jumping over a lot of history here because there's there's 10 years. And, and by the way, I'm talking with Rebecca Charleston. She now is the CEO and co-founder of the Charleston Law Center in Reno, but she's a sex trafficking victim. And we're hearing her story right now. Well, how, how did you get out of such a horrific ten-year, A really nightmare.
1: Yeah, it took a it took a long time, you know, and honestly, when I was finally physically free, I wasn't I wasn't emotionally or mentally free. Mm -hmm. And so that took even longer. You know, uh, I actually ran for me. It was my third escape attempt that finally stuck. The national average is much like domestic violence, seven escape attempts of getting out, going back, getting out, going back. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But for me, um, it stuck when uh, my my trafficker was in prison. We all wound up serving time in federal prison for conspiracy to commit tax evasion. Since um, once the federal case began to unravel, um, none of us would talk because we were all too scared of our trafficker. Mm-hmm. And, and so we all wound up taking a charge of tax evasion because that's the only thing they could prove without us Telling the full story and corroborating. And so, um, he turned himself in in 2009 and that's when I knew I had 24 months to run and hide and change my identity before he hunted me down and killed me and like I said I wish life got better then but it didn't you know I really reverted right back to that 17 year old girl I was I started using drugs again I'd been arrested 10 times by that point I had a federal felony I had literally a million dollars of debt that my trafficker put in my name he put a $600,000 home in my name I had two eighty thousand dollars that was ultimately foreclosed on I had two eighty thousand dollars cars that were repossessed in my name while I was serving time in prison for him. He put $50,000 of credit card debt in my name and then he duped me into going back and filing back taxes so the feds could never come after us again. Mm. So I owe the IRS a quarter million dollars. So when I was thinking about running... (laughs) what options did I really have? You know, I had no job experience, you know, obviously I've been in prostitution for 10 years. So what was I going to do? Use my trafficker as a reference? Like, obviously not. I had no education. I only got my GED because the federal prison made me. So I had a GED, Mm -hmm. you know, I, and so I stayed in the life. I thought, you know, so much money had passed through my hands, that that was really my only option honestly i had no hope for a future that didn't revolve around my body being sold mm. and so i stayed in and i floundered for quite a while obviously eventually i was able to to uh, change but honestly it for me the ultimate wake up call was getting pregnant it was it was having something else to live for mm. you know because i didn't think i deserved any better You know, I I was still trying to figure it all out on my own. Um, You know, obviously I'd been raised in church, but I was raised with that kind of angry, vindictive God that I thought that if I wasn't doing everything he wanted me to do, then he didn't want anything to do with me, and that I I thought I had to perform. For love, you know, from God. I didn't know a Mm -hmm. Jesus that wanted a personal relationship with me. And um, and so I tried to do it on my own. And it wasn't until, you know, finally having something bigger to live for than myself by um, getting pregnant that I was willing to change everything.
0: Well, how did you come to Christ?
1: Yeah. So um, it was getting pregnant and started feeling the burden to pray for the first time in a really mm-hmm. long time. Like mm-hmm. I remember thinking like I would probably spontaneously combust if I would walk in a church, you know, yeah. like just sin all over me, you know, here I've been through all of these horrible experiences and, and I really blamed myself for all those things. I thought mm-hmm. I had made bad choices and I got what I deserved. And that's so much easier for a victim to believe rather than admitting, no, someone else controlled me and manipulated me and made me do things that I would have never imagined doing, Mm -hmm. um, that, that, is very hard for victims. That's the number one challenge facing victims, is we don't self-identify as victims. We we blame ourselves, Hmm. and so here I was, now pregnant, and I my life had got slightly less dysfunctional, you know, over the the couple years that I had been away from my trafficker. But um, I started feeling that burden to pray, and I remember I just felt like God was talking to me, like even through the songs on my secular playlist, I I felt like the Lord was speaking to me, and um, I called my family in Texas and said. Said, you know I'm pregnant I don't want to raise a baby in this environment will you help me and and they said I, I knew I had to leave before the baby was born um, he his dad wanted me to have an abortion yeah. and um, it, it, you know he was a criminal and just wouldn't have been a good environment and I knew, I had to leave before he was born. Otherwise, it would have been so much harder. And so um, my family said, well, we won't give you any money to get here. But if you get here, you can live with us for free. And Mm. so that's the only promise I had to go on. January 7th of 2012, I rented a U-Haul trailer. Well, really, January 6th, I rented the U-Haul trailer and uh, filled it with all my little belongings and clothes that I had at that point and drove 16 hours straight through from Las Vegas to the Dallas-Fort Worth area and moved back into my mom and dad's house at the age of 30. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's quite, I can't imagine the adjustment that was
1: that was hard and um, i got there and uh, i fell of course i was tired and so i was taking a nap and on that saturday afternoon and my sister came in the house and she said hey i'm going to church do you want to go with me and i just hopped up with this hopeful expectancy you know i i really believed that god had gotten me to dallas and that i wanted to see what god had for me mm-hmm. and i went to church and i don't remember what the sermon was about but i was really moved by the worship and i went down for a prayer and I almost went to this guy at the end of the aisle, but instead I saw this girl with curly brown hair um, to the right, and I walked up to her instead, and her name is Pastor Samantha Golden. We're we're wonderful friends to this day. And she, Instead of judging me and looking at me shamefully because here I was with a baby bump without a ring on my finger, um, she gave me the most genuine embrace and told me all about Embrace Grace, which is a program for single pregnant girls in church. They're in 500 churches across the country, and that literally started two days after I got there. There. That Monday, that program started, mm-hmm. and I was able to attend a semester of classes, and they gave me everything I needed for my baby, which was huge in that time because meeting those tangible needs is such a great way that the church can reach vulnerable people. And they were just really the hands and feet of Jesus, and I I, I saw a different side of God that I had never experienced, and I began experiencing healing, and um, you know, understanding that that God was with me through all those tough moments, and you know, really finding obviously. My calling ultimately that mm-hmm. that you know I kind of have this running joke with God. Like, you know, obviously God tells us that He will not give us any more that we can handle. And sometimes I'm like, okay, God, I get it. Like <laughs> I can handle a lot. Like I'm I'm done handling things, please, Lord. But um, when we allow God to use those hard things, like it's so amazing. You know, I I just I never thought I would have my pimp always told me I would be broke, fat, and ugly, and no one would ever love me, and people would disrespect me all the time because of my past, and I would never be able to have a, a future. And now to be able to stand here and look at how God has redeemed like so many of those areas, and mm-hmm. just the the life that I have today that I could have never imagined.
0: You had heard about Jesus as you grew up, but when you attended the church with your sister again, um, it, you were hearing it with. Hearing the gospel with new ears, if you will.
1: Yeah. Well, I think I was finally at that broken place that sometimes those stubborn ones of us have to get to. Of, okay, God, I've tried it on my own. I can't do it on my own. I need you, and He and He's always there to meet us when we say that. Right? He's so faithful. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> and uh, well, and, and there's so many things, and and there's other questions I want to ask you, but for those that that. That are that come out, for however they do, whether they they escape or they're rescued from sex trafficking. Before I ask you that, can you define sex trafficking for us, um, uh, Rebecca? I mean, it's talked a lot about today. I think people may assume they know what it is, and maybe you've given a good. But can you can you give us a little bit of a definition, just to. Help people understand. Sure,
1: I mean trafficking is slavery. There's two main forms of trafficking, which are going to be labor and sex. So, um, with adults, there is an element of force, fraud, or coercion that has to come into play to to be able to legally prove trafficking. But um, it's you know forcing someone either into you know some some form of labor, like migrant farm workers that are forced to work with no to little pay, um, or into sex work, which is prostitution. You mm-hmm. know the the issues of prostitution and sex trafficking are are separate issues, but they're inextricably linked, right? Where you have one, you have the other. Right. And while not all prostitution is trafficking, most people in prostitution have been trafficked at some point during their career mm. in prostitution, right? So at some point, maybe they were forced into it as a child. And then once they turned 18, obviously they didn't magically get out. And so now they stayed in and look to be a willing consensual sex worker right is a euphemism obviously that people use because it's neither sex nor work Mm. right and and so um you know it's inherently coercive when you introduce an influencer as powerful as money Mm. Mm -hmm. to a situation right right? it's inherently coercive so
0: there it is and 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 for those that do come out then and you just described i mean there's a healing and recovery process uh we we think of uh soldiers that come back from war they they suffer from something called you know ptsd post-traumatic Stress disorder, but that you're coming out and the others from a very traumatic experience.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah, it's the we um, studies have shown it's the exact same levels, um, if not more. You know, when you think about people can get um, PTSD from a single traumatic event, mm-hmm. and when you think about my life, you know, I have. 10 years of every single day being a traumatic event. I mean, mm-hmm. I was literally living in my fight or flight, right? My my autonomic nervous system response that God created in us mm-hmm. to be able to survive situations. I was literally having to survive every single day. If it's not violence from my boyfriend or my pimp that I think loves me, it's, you know, violence from other girls. It's a competitive game and you're fighting other girls you're fighting sex buyers that want to rape you or take their money back because maybe the experience didn't last as long as they hoped you know you're running you're evading hotel security you're trying to not get arrested right like i mean when you think about the daily reality of what it's like you can you can imagine the amount of trauma
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, and and then uh, there's so much to ask you about In, in 2019 Uh, You were, and I've interviewed him about this, but you were involved, you were the plaintiff in a federal lawsuit that um, Jason Granasso, a local uh, Reno attorney, filed a federal lawsuit. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you felt, I mean, obviously you're kind of putting yourself out there, you're becoming a public figure. Uh, Why did you feel so strongly to get involved in uh, trying to end uh, through a lawsuit in Nevada uh, legal prostitution.
1: You know, honestly, it was a really scary thing. Honestly, it took about six months for me to to decide mm. to be a part of the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Um, because it it was a landmark lawsuit. I mean, it was a, a survivor of sex trafficking suing an entire state, its governor, and its legislature trying to hold the state accountable uh, because the laws that facilitated the illegal sex market that exists that's so prolific here in Nevada. And um, it was a scary thing. I mean, putting my name on that lawsuit um, was, was difficult. And I obviously kind of decided to step up to the plate because... Um, I just felt like this is what God has prepared me for, you know, is to to be able to, you know, take some of these hard decisions and, and these big steps and, and open the door for other people to see that they can do it, too. And so ultimately, we were unsuccessful with that original lawsuit. We mm. went all the way up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and basically, we failed to establish third party standing, That It can make it easy to understand for most listeners. And so with my case, and so in their dismissal, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, though, gave us really a roadmap for how to refile the lawsuit using third party standing. And so um, with that... We've had an amazing team of attorneys nationally uh, now take up the lawsuit and refile it. I am no longer part of it, unfortunately, because a statute of limitations has uh, beyond passed for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a new lawsuit that has been filed that will hopefully be successful.
0: And if people sense, uh, Rebecca, that you're pretty fluent with legal things, you actually uh, have since uh, earned your degrees in uh Is it criminal justice and criminology?
1: Yep. I graduated summa cum laude with my bachelor's degree in criminal justice and then earned my master's degree in 2018 in criminology. Oh,
0: congratulations. Thank you. Um, Tell us now, our time is going very, very quickly. You are uh, the CEO of the Charleston Law Center, obviously named for you. You co-founded it with uh, Jason Guanaso, the the attorney on that case that you mentioned just a moment ago. Tell us a bit about what you do at the the Law Center in, in, in Reno.
1: Sure. So we obviously wanted to establish this this law center in the state of Nevada. We have um, our headquarters is here in Reno. We also have an office down in Las Vegas and we provide pro bono legal services to survivors of sexual and domestic violence. So that includes sex trafficking, sexual assault, and domestic violence. Um, Because of that legal market in Nevada, uh, Nevada's illegal market uh, of of prostitution is 63% higher than the next highest state. And so we recognize that Nevada is a leader in um, homicides that are domestic violence that result in homicides of sexual assault of sexually transmitted infections of all kinds of, of violence against women um, because of this laxadaisical attitude you know towards the commodification of women's bodies and so we wanted to establish a law center here to be able to help those people that have been affected and um, you know we we kind of bucket our services into three different categories we have crisis services which is where um Victims and survivors are usually maybe intervening with law enforcement. We might um, be an advocate in a courtroom. Uh, We might help with a restraining order or things like that that are needed in crisis. And then we have the healing and restoration services, which are things more like Reuniting with family when the survivor's in a healthy place, Um, you know, getting children back. It might look like um, getting your record cleared. It might look like getting debt um, and your credit history cleaned up because, you know, an abuser had put things in your name. Mm -hmm. Um, And then our third bucket is accountability services, which is like me trying to hold the state of Nevada accountable. Um, Other accountability services, legal services may look like um, a survivor suing a trafficker civilly, you know, and trying to go after Mm -hmm. their assets um, or maybe holding a, a hotel that was complicit in the process of their trafficking accountable.
0: How can people find out more information about the Charleston Law Center? I think you said it's all pro bono. It's all no charge.
1: 100% free for the survivors. You can find out more information at our website, which is charlestonlawcenter.org.
0: And obviously, uh, sex trafficking victims are victims. As I understand it, I think the way you framed it today too, that, that in the brothels, whether they're willingly or unwillingly, they're still essentially victims. What Are there those that are, would see themselves as, as happy or happily involved in, in the legal brothels? I mean, you see sometimes on news stories, they're smiling and they're giggling and, and, and they're, they're kind of saying, I, I, nobody's forcing me to be here. What do you say to that?
1: I think there may be a a very slim minority of people that do actually have choices and actually choose sex work as an option. But for the vast majority of people that find themselves in sex work or prostitution, um, they're, they're there out of either dire circumstances and desperation or because they're being forced. Mm. And so we don't want to make a, you know, when we look at that slim minority, what we see is they're mostly white women from advantaged backgrounds. Mm. And maybe they do really enjoy that kind of lifestyle. Um, but we we don't want to make rules for a privileged few mm-hmm. that hurt the disadvantaged majority, right. right? Yes. And so um you know while while those people maybe they do really have choices and they and they really do love it um because of that legal market like I said it makes that illegal market flourish even higher right because there's never going to be enough willing women that want to be prostitutes to meet the demand in this country there's an insatiable demand for uh, that men want to buy sex and mm-hmm. there there will never be enough willing women to be prostitutes so there's always going to be an illegal supply that traffickers and brothel owners and pimps will bring in because there's money to be made at the end of the day, this is this is a business. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and there's a lot of money being made and there's never going to be enough willing women, like I said. So.
0: And, and, it, and there is that push across the country. You see either to decriminalize or to legalize prostitution.
1: Yeah, there's there's seven different states. You know, honestly, it's it's unfortunately being seen by some lawmakers as the progressive, I'm using air quotes here, mm-hmm. the progressive thing to do. Um, people are comparing it to marijuana, that look, well, we can decriminalize marijuana, let's decriminalize, but but they're not looking at the human element. This is these are human beings that are being bought and sold, right? It's not a drug that's being bought to consume. And so people are labeling it, they're trying to push it through on the heels of that. There are seven states actually trying to fully decriminalize prostitution there there are da's like in um, michigan there's a da that has decided he will no longer prosecute these crimes which the da is not prosecuting police aren't arresting right and if we take police activity out of prostitution right uh, completely then that means we'll never find sex trafficking cases because prostitution is where sex trafficking hides Mm -hmm. right and so um if we remove police Uh, law enforcement's authority to be able to intervene in those situations, then we're going to see the problem expand even more.
0: You are very active in all kinds of different areas in the legislative area. And I think you told me that before we started talking here that you uh, were recently in Washington, D.C., that you spoke at a conference there. Can you tell us and you, you yeah. testified before Congress, is yeah, that right?
1: Yeah. Well, I got to. We did a briefing at Capitol Hill, which was a huge, obviously, honor. One of those pinch yourself kind of <laughs> moments. Um, I got to testify um, on the equality model, which is what we believe would be the solution. Which is where we um, do decriminalize the people in prostitution, but we instead go after the people that are driving the demand. We we do arrest the sex buyers and the pimps and the brothel owners.
0: The, the prostitutes, as you said, pardon me, or the the sex traffic people are the victims
1: right right and we're looking at them as as though whether they're actual victims of trafficking or they're just there out of dire circumstance mm-hmm. we still believe that they shouldn't be criminalized for what they're doing and so we want to remove those criminal penalties, but we do want to increase the penalties against sex buyers that are creating that demand, right? It's when you think about economics, right? That if you go after, if there is no demand, there will be no supply. There will be way less supply. And so, um, you know, the equality model, there's a whole website, equalitymodelus.org, that has a lot more information if people are interested.
0: Are there. Um and there must be uh, ministries that are involved in this uh, in, in this area, Rebecca?
1: Yes. I mean, there are. That, that was a conference that we were at, World Without Exploitation, and Rights for Girls co-sponsored that conference that brought us, uh, myself and other survivor leaders, out to Washington, D.C. to talk to lawmakers. Um, And there's other organizations, obviously, locally, there's some great organizations, Exquisite, Awaken, um, ministries that are not only helping the individual survivors that come out, but also, you know, pushing for these laws and to to actually go upstream, right? Instead of just helping people downriver, uh, helping them get out and heal their lives, why can't we go upstream and stop so many people, hopefully, from getting into it in the first place?
0: You've been listening to his people on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Rebecca Charleston, CEO and co founder of the Charleston Law Center in Reno. Go to charlestonlawcenter.org. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Randall Wilbur, who was a client of Teen Challenge and now, as an adult, runs the new facility in Billings, Montana. I remember waking up in a, in a sad,
1: um, it was a meth house. And I, I called my mom and said, mom, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired. And, uh, this was in the early days of the internet. And so she, I think she might've like had to ask Jeeves, <laughs> but she found teen challenge on the internet. And, uh, he had the wisdom to say, you need to get out of Colorado and got me to Oklahoma. And there was a teen challenge just uh, outside a lot in Fort Hill, Oklahoma, in a small town called cash that's where Jesus met me and his love changed my life. And I knew that it was so real and it was so powerful that I knew that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life was help men experience
0: what I had experienced. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.